Before his death in 1981, William Soroyan, uh, who was an American journalist and published, uh, publisher, uh, wrote to the Association, uh, Associated Press and uh, simply wrote these words and said, Everybody has got to die, but I always believed that there would be an exception when it was coming to me. I think uh, for most of us in here, we think maybe there's uh, an exception to the rule when it comes to us in death, right? Uh, I mean, isn't life one of the most um, challenging things to get our hold on? You, you begin as an infant, you grow to maturity, and then about the time you turn 30, it just begins to all break down and go from there, Right? And yet all the while we see the breakdown coming, the aches and the pains, the groans that we have in the morning, we think that, hey, Rogaine, hair for men, South Beach diet, cabbage soup, some, somehow prolong us, you know. But death is inevitable. It's inevitable for every single person in this room. And so that's why today I have something on you in this sense, that the message that I speak and preach today applies to every single person, young and old, rich or poor, every single person this message applies to. And as we talk about a subject in which many of us are fearful about, many of us have experienced very close in our lives and into our heart, we often have questions, we have assumptions, we have a lot of things that revolve around this one idea. Jesus speaks on it candidly. And he speaks on it so candidly that as we leave today, I have but one goal in mind, and that is to give you extreme hope in who Jesus is and what he can say regarding this issue of life and death. And so I'm going to encourage us to pray together, and then we're going to begin uh, this fifth week in our series called The I Am, the statements of Jesus, the things that he said about himself. And so let's pray. God, we love you and we thank you for today. I thank you, Lord, for every single person that's here, young and old, people that are members here, people that are regular attenders, and, and people who are taking a chance and coming back to church uh, for the very first time in a long time, people that are experiencing uh, what life has to offer, but nonetheless, just can there be a church that's relative to my life and that doesn't judge me? And I pray, God, that today that they would that see that our desire is to love them well, to care for them, and to show them a God who cares and loves for them more than we ever could. And so, Lord, I pray that you would speak to our hearts today, that you would captivate our thoughts' attention. And, Father, I pray that in the midst of a, a fallible man like me, that, God, that you would show yourself through this text. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So here it is, five weeks in, Jesus said about himself a handful of things. He says, I am the bread of life. Later, uh, he would also say that I am living water, but uh, those are kind of a couple together. He says, I am the light of the world. Uh, I am the door in which the sheep enter. I am the good shepherd. And then today, he's going to make the fifth statement out of seven statements that he's saying, I am. It, it's the idea that he is adding to what Moses said when he spoke to God. He said, God, you're calling me. You want me to go to my people and tell them to serve you, but I don't even know what to call you. I mean, who do I tell the people that you are? And God said, you tell them I am who I am. And so what Jesus is merely making the claim and the picture of is this. He says, I am divine. I and the Father are one. There's nothing the Father gives me control of that I'll lose or somehow fall to shambles. He goes, I am God in the flesh. 
I am life. I am breath. I am hope eternal. And he's just as simply saying, if you want to see God, look at me. And so Jesus is the image of the invisible God, a God that Moses longed to see, a God that Abraham never looked upon. Jesus says, you can look at me. You can see who I am. You can see me in my divinity. You can see me in my deity. And you can see that God is supreme and he is the father of all, the Lord of all, and you'll see him through me. And so that's what he's doing. And so in this fifth I am statement, though, he's going to give us a picture of what's happening in a little town called Bethany. And so um, you're, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter 11. We're going to look at 44 verses here, and we're going to run through them in a pretty quick amount of time. And so I uh, hope that you brought a pen, a highlighter. If you don't have a Bible at all, we'd be blessed to give you one uh, so that you can take notes yourself and follow along. But I want to also just bring to mention John uh, chapter 20. The reason that John writes this book is different than his cohorts. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all wrote. Uh, they wrote to different peoples, different regions. Uh, but they, they had specific purpose in mind that they uh, wrote with similar collections. And so Matthew, Mark, and Luke are often referred to as the synoptic gospels, which means that they're just similar in, in style, similar stories. You'll see many of the same things contained in each of those three books. John, he kind of does something different. And he even tells you in the latter part of the book why he does this. And in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, this is exactly what he says. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so what's interesting is, is that John's going to show you about seven signs through the book that would point you to believing in Jesus. Jesus is going to make seven statements of himself that I am. And so this is the fifth I am statement that Jesus makes, but it's also the seventh sign out of seven of those signs that's being revealed by John. Why? So that you and I, or that anybody that comes across this narrative would what? See and believe. And so here it is. We're calling you, and God is calling you to see and believe. Verse 1 of John chapter 11. Regarding uh, this idea of death. Now, there was a certain man who was ill. His name was Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. So this, I, this, this area of Bethany is this little town, which you're going to see later off in the text, uh, that's uh, about two miles from Jerusalem. Now there's a, another town called Bethany that is uh, quite a ways away. It's going to be on the east side of the Jordan River, but these two are not the same. This idea of Bethany is where Lazarus lived. It's where his sisters, Mary and Martha, lived. And so here it is, uh, and he's ill. Verse 2 says, It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. Now in verse 2, John is simply revealing to you who Mary is. So there's many Lazaruses. is a popular uh, name in that day and age. So he goes, hey, Lazarus was ill. Lazarus, by the way, is the brother of Mary and Martha. Now Mary is the one who anointed my head with oil. She's the one who sat at my feet and she wiped her tears with her hair. That's what he's showing. Now interesting enough is John's not going to give you that narrative in his book until a few more chapters over. So he's actually prefacing something that happens before the actual narrative that he gives. And the question is, is, well, why? Well, here's why. John wrote his book later than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And so what Matthew, Mark, and Luke have seen and heard and wrote are things that 
or have already probably been circulating. And so what John is simply doing is he's just, he's just giving a precursor. He's just taking an asterisk and putting it right by this line. He's simply going, Lazarus was ill, and I'm talking about Martha and Mary. And by the way, Mary's the one who anointed my head with oil, and she cried at my feet. That's all he's doing there. And so verse 3 says, So the sister sent to him, saying, Lord, the one whom you love is ill. Lazarus is sick, and the one whom you love, Lazarus, is ill. And that word love is not the, the word, the agape love, which you and I tend to know of God. God is the eternal, unending, unyielding, supreme authority of love. He is the one who loves us in unconditionally in our ups and downs, in our sin, in our filth, in our mistakes. He continues to love us, and that's the agape love of God. But the word here is not the agape love, but it's a phileo love, phileo. Um, the idea is that it's a brotherly love. Matter of fact, you'll see right here what it says. Verse 3, the sister sent to him saying, Lord, the one whom you love is ill. Look at verse 4. But when Jesus heard, he said, the illness does not lead to death. It is the glory of God, so, the God what? so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. And so here it is, this man whom he loves, as if he's his brother, is ill. And they, they've sent for Jesus, who is many miles off, and he's doing ministry, and he hears about this. And his response is, is this illness is not going to lead to death, but it's for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, if you're a disciple, you are hearing these words of Jesus, and you go, oh, Lazarus just has a, a little whooping cough. I mean, it's nothing big. I mean, it's nothing that some rest and, and a good chicken noodle soup won't, won't cure, right? And so that's exactly what they think that it is. Verse 5 says, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Now catch this, Jesus loves Lazarus because he's literally like a brother to him. He has been in their home, out of their home many times, has probably stayed the night there in Mary and Martha and Lazarus area and their homes, most likely has eaten dinner with them many a time. He's done life with them. And here it is. He gets this alarming notice, this call, that this, this man whom he loves is dying and is ill. And Jesus' response is, okay, awesome. Let me kind of put it in context like this. Let's just happen to say that you're in journey group with someone. Like you're, you're doing life together. There's 12 of you in the group, and you're... I mean, like, you just love each other, I mean, a whole lot. You're doing life, like, you have brotherly love. You have the strong affection for one another. You're learning the word together. You're developing your theology together. And you happen to have a doctor in the midst of your group. And one day, your grandmother becomes really ill. Or your son breaks out with a rash that you have absolutely no idea what it is. Who's the first person you call? The guy in your journey group. And what's your expectation of him? That he comes. Like, I mean, this is such a strong expectation. My son has this crazy rash. I have no idea what it is. It's from his toes all the way to his head. It is in every place, even some awkward ones. Can you please come? And it's as if they say, I'll get there in a few days. But I'm sure God can show you his glory through all of it. Do what? You better get up over here right now or I'm not coming back to your church. Can you imagine those feelings? Like 
Here it is, Mary and Martha know the very person who has the solution to the problem. He is off doing ministry. He cannot come. He gets the word, and then it's almost as if, even though he's received the word, the only thing he gives the disciples in the context of this scripture is, hey, we'll get there when we get there. Like, there's no alarming move. It's it's just, here it is. And so, verse 7 says, Then after he said this to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were were just now seeking to stone you, and, and now you're going there again. So he's going to stay there two, long, two days longer, and you're wondering why. Why don't we just go there right now if we're going to go there? Because the disciples who are with Jesus know why they're not in the Jerusalem area and why they're not within two miles of it in Bethany. And here's why. They have just been chased out by the Pharisees. Like there are people who are plotting to kill him. And so the thought is, is if Jesus leaves where he's doing ministry and goes back to Jerusalem, then it's going to be a sure death for all the disciples. Meanwhile, if you're a disciple, here's what you've heard. You have heard that you got a guy named Lazarus whom we love. Yeah, absolutely. But he's got a whooping cough. Why do we need to go back there to lay our lives down to give him what? Some cough medicine? Can't Mary and Martha do that? Flip side, you got Mary and Martha on this end who are freaking out. And the reason why is because they are wondering where the divine healing is. They know, they believe that Jesus is the one who could do something about their problem. The problem is, is that he's not there. And so here it is. Um, Jesus goes, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, why? They're going to stone you. They're going to kill us all. And then Jesus answered in verse 9, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because he is the light, because the light is not in him. And after saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. Now Jesus says some very interesting things here that are worth highlighting, noting, and, and definitely putting some things in the margin. Number one, like if you read this, you go, Okay, that's pretty obvious. If we have put our faith in Jesus, we, we know the metaphors he's uses. He's even already said, I am the light of the world. So right here, he goes, hey, if you don't want to stumble, don't walk in the night. If you, if you want to have life, have it to the full, okay, walk in the day. And that's what we come away with. We come away with, oh, okay, that's awesome. Yes, and, and you might have already highlighted that. If anyone walks in the night, he does not stumble. If he walks in the day, or I'm, uh, if, I'm sorry, if he walks in the night, he stumbles. If he's if he walks in the day, he does not stumble, and, and then you can't claim that light's in you if you got darkness in you. But that's not what Jesus is actually saying here. Here's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, are there not 12 hours for us to accomplish our ministry? And he's not even speaking of light within one day. What Jesus is simply saying is, is that I control all things. I control the hour in which I came. I control the hour in which I go. I even control the hour in which I'll lay my life down. And multiple times throughout the Gospels, you will hear Jesus and see Jesus say, my hour has not yet come. Meaning, it's not appointed yet for me to die and lay my life down. And so he continues to do ministry. And what's interesting here is he's making that claim here that are there not 12 hours in a day? I control all things. Don't try to get me to do something in the 11th hour that I should do in the 12th hour. 
And Jesus is not fretting over any of this. Meanwhile, his disciples are pondering, okay, we're going back here to Bethany, to the disciples, where there's going to be a lot of people there to kill us. Not only that, we're going back and we're going to awaken him from his sleep. Like, why would we do that? Doesn't he need sleep anyway? Like, it doesn't make any sense to you. It's like you're confusing us. And Jesus had a habit of doing that, right? And so here it is. They're about to begin heading that way. And he says, he's fallen asleep. Let's go wake him up. Verse 12, the disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he's going to recover. He'll recover. And that's exactly their assertion. Their thought is, is that, okay, here it is. He's sick. He's, he's got all he needs. He's resting up. He'll bounce back in a few days. The problem is, is that their culture and our culture, bouncing back was entirely different. Something that you and I think, oh, wow, this is not really a big deal. Some of us don't take anything for. We bounce back within a handful of days. They're thinking, oh, he's going to bounce back. Surely they've given him all that he needs. He's going to be fine. The problem is, is that God has an entirely different agenda. And so here it is, the God that controls the wind and the waves. The God who speaks and it comes to be. The one who turns water to wine. The one who makes the blind see, the mute to hear, the lame to walk. Also is saying, please don't, don't miss that I am in control of time. I allot your days. I number them. I knew them before they ever came to be. And so as the good shepherd, and also um, as the divine being that he is, he goes, nothing's going to change for Lazarus whether I'm there or I'm not. I'm in control of all of it. Don't try to get me to do something that I'm not ready to do. And so they go, okay, he must be asleep and he's going to recover. However, um, we're going to see what happens. So look at verse 13. Now Jesus has spoken of his death. But they thought that he was meaning like taking rest and sleep. So they think he's taking a nap. Jesus is speaking of death. Then Jesus finally comes out and just tells him plainly, Guys, Lazarus is dead. Oh, wow. Oh, okay. Uh, I, I'm sorry. I missed it. I, I, didn't, I don't guess I got that. Well, clearly you didn't get that. So they're thinking, oh, he, he's just sleeping. He's resting up, going to bounce back. But Jesus says, no, he's died. And then look what he says, verse 15. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. It brings back the recollection of what John wrote this entire book about. John says, I'm giving you these signs. He performed very many more in front of the, the disciples and the apostles. I didn't, I didn't spend time writing them down. I gave you the ones that would surely bring about belief through your faith. Jesus says it here himself, I am glad that I was not with Lazarus, the one whom I love. Why? So that you may believe. It is the picture of John chapter 9, the boy that was born blind. I shared that story with you recently. And the boy that was born blind, if you remember, the disciples are walking along the road with Jesus, and they say, Jesus, why is this, this man born blind? Is it because of his sin or his parents' sin? And Jesus' response was, it was neither. But it's so that the power of God may be displayed in his what? Life. And so what God is simply saying of the blind man is I want to display my power in his life. What he's saying of Lazarus, I want to display my power in his death. Like this has all happened because it's the hour I appointed. And so whether I am off doing ministry or I'm right beside him, the outcome is the same. 
And what I do with it is what matters. And I'm going to do something that you may believe and have life. And he says, and let us go to him. Now, I want to take just a second, and I want to pause here and say a couple things. Number one, we oftentimes think that God should only display his power and his divine ability in our strength. But what we see from the Apostle Paul, 2 Corinthians 12, is that oftentimes God does his best work where? In our weakness. And we have tended to take the gospel and, and somehow... Uh, convert it, manipulate it in some ways uh, to fit us. And I'm dumbfounded by the amount of pastors and teachers who can take the word and somehow misconstrue it and simply say things, hey, baby, you're going to be fine. Your back's going to be okay. By By God's stripes, you've been healed. They take Isaiah 53, a picture of forgiveness through the blood of Christ, the broken body of Christ, and they somehow push it on us that, Oh, we get divine healing because that's what we deserve in Christ. No, what you see from Paul is that oftentimes as a Christian, we get divine suffering. Like we have death and affliction and pain and hurt. Now, don't get me wrong. God does want to bless us, give us abundant life. But listen, abundant life is not built off of wealth and prestige and honor. It's built off of peace and love and joy in the midst of difficult circumstances. And I think where we've confused the gospel and many times is to think because we have Jesus in our life and because we have a strong backbone through our church, that somehow we're not going to have affliction. And I think that is the furthest thing from the truth when you look at the, the picture of the gospel. I think to surrender yourself to Jesus actually says, I'm going to suffer much in this life. And it could be from persecution. It could be from famine. It could be from nakedness. It could be from peril or sword. Or as Paul said, I was chased by my own countrymen. I've been chased by bandits. I've lacked food. I've had food. I've lacked clothing and shelter. I've had all of those things. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. The idea there is the same in 2 Corinthians 12. In my weakness, Christ is what? Strong. And that's the picture here. God is simply saying, I'm glad that Lazarus died. Why? Because in his suffering and in his death, I'm going to show you something that you've never seen before. And I think oftentimes we miss God in the midst of our suffering because we don't believe that we should be suffering in the first place. But let me take you back to the very first thing I said. Your Rogaine, your diets... Your pills, all the junk that we're selling, does not give you longer days in life. God's appointed man wants to die, and he knows that, that day already. Do you understand? And I know there's a lot of us who would like to think that that shake we drink every day just prolongs it, right? Maybe it does, but God knows that day. And the, the bottom line is this. We're going to suffer in this life. But suffering gives us an opportunity to see God display his power. Amen? And so Jesus says, let's go. And then Thomas, he pops out. Uh, Thomas called the twin. This is Didymus, the same guy who doubts Jesus every way, uh, every turn of the corner. He goes, hey, let's go. Let's go die with him. Come on. And that's exactly what he says. His thought is, we're going to go See this dead man now, and we're all going to die. Let's do it. And he signs up first. Now, what's interesting is 
is that we look at him and we oftentimes challenge his faith. I mean, Thomas is the guy who, who doubts almost all the time. He, he's the very guy in John chapter 14 that when Jesus says, I'm going to go and prepare a place for you, come back and receive unto myself, Thomas is the one who goes, wait, wait a second, how are we to know where you're going unless you, you take us and you tell us? He's the same one after the resurrection. He goes, I'm not going to believe until I've touched him, until I've seen it. He's the same guy here going, hey, I love you, Jesus, so much, I'm willing to die for you. Let's do it. But then you'll see what he does. He'll run. He'll run, okay? Until the very last days of his life when he actually becomes a, a martyr and suffers for his faith. But I'll tell you, we question his faith a lot of times. We think, oh, he's doubting Thomas. But the one thing he has on us is that he loves God richly. And I think the one question I'd have for you, because oftentimes we poke fun of people like Thomas in which we see their legacy and we know their story, is, is how much do you love God? Because I, I know you're a doubter too. Matter of fact, just to kind of confirm that you might be a doubter, if you have recently, within the last two months, said, God, I'm just dealing with something and I just need you to show me something. Just show me a sign, God. Like, give, then you're doubting Thomas. Do you understand? Now, now let's confess. How many of us are doubting Thomases? Okay, now let's confess something else. How many of us are liars? Okay. <laughs> I mean, the bottom line is I think we all can relate to where he is. Thomas is saying, let's go. you got the disciples who are living in fear. They're saying, I'm not sure. Then on the other end of the, the spectrum, you got Mary and Martha. They're now beginning to the process of mourning because they're afraid that they'll never see their brother again. And then verse 17, now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for, what, four days. Four. Now, according to Jewish tradition, the reason that there would be no resurrection or a hope of a miracle is because they believed that God could do anything he wanted up to three days. That there could be a divine miracle, some sort of uh, supernatural phenomenon. But after that, that it was out of the question. There was no hope. And so Jesus, being off, most likely maybe in the other community called Bethany, east of the Jordan, makes his way there. And he gets there on the fourth day in which he has been dead. And the reason he does that is because of the Jewish, what? Superstition. He's going to, he's going to make this thing count. If he's telling his disciples, I've waited to receive glory in Lazarus' death, I'm going to make sure that we do it right. I mean, Jesus could have obviously showed up 24 hours later and done the same miracle, and people would have been saying, well, maybe he wasn't really dead, maybe he was just in a deep sleep, etc. But after four days, that's not the thing that they're saying. The thing they're saying is there's no hope. There is no, there is no return. It's all but done. Now, Jesus gets there, and, and, and you see Bethany was near Jerusalem, verse 18, about two miles off, as we spoke about earlier. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. Literally, there were beginning to be an entourage of people coming to help them mourn. In the Jewish tradition, they also had mourning wailers. And they had paid professionals that would come and lead the wailing. As if you couldn't be wailing enough, if you couldn't show enough agony and remorse already, they had teams that would come and they would lead you. And so this could have been a couple dozen, it could have been a couple hundred, and they're wailing and mourning and just making this huge to-do. And get this, it goes on for a week. 
one solid week of wailing and mourning and wailing and mourning, much of which is rehearsed. Meanwhile, Jesus is going to show up. And as he's coming, verse 20, Martha heard that Jesus was coming and she went and she met him. But Mary remained seated at the house. And the reason that Mary's there is not because she, you know, didn't want to see Jesus. Most likely, she didn't even know Jesus was there yet. So Martha, the busybody, she's the one who's running around, scurrying all the time. She's always got something to do on her to-do list, is doing what she's doing. So she's making preparations. And, and just FYI, she can't begin to prepare a meal in which she had the habit of wanting to do before Lazarus' body was wrapped and and uh, there were spices on it, and he was all put in the tomb. Because until then, you can't even begin the process of feeding other people that are there. And so that was the very first thing on their agenda. Martha's most likely taking care of all these arrangements and done this. Mary, meanwhile, is mourning. Like she has a deep, biting hurt is the picture that you have here. And Martha is one of those that it's literally going to hit her afterwards. Like she's gone about getting everything done. And that was just Martha's nature where Mary... She, she oftentimes, you would find her in a place of solitude where she was already beginning to introspectively look at what's going on here. And so that's what she's doing. Meanwhile, Martha's gone out to meet Jesus. And then Martha's response to him is not, hey, Jesus, I'm so glad you're here. Look at it. Jesus, if you'd have been here, my brother would not have died. Like that's her first words. I mean, she's very unsettled about the fact that he had not returned. But here's the deal. It is a picture of something incredible. And so I want you to hone in on this part right here in the scripture. I want you to underline it. I want you to make some highlights. I want you to see this. This here is the picture of something really divine. It's a picture of the incarnation of God through Christ. So the incarnation is God coming in the form of a human. So here it is. Look at this. Jesus was in Bethany. John chapter 10, you saw he was in that area. He had had a, a man that was born blind. He had said, I'm the, what, good shepherd. Sheep know me. They hear my voice. They follow me. He leaves to do ministry. Lazarus dies. He's gone. He's far off. He hears upon death, and he comes back only to what? Say that he is life. Then he speaks not only life, but he what? Portrays life. Think about that. The incarnation is, is that God was among his people. The Shekinah glory was uh, amongst his people in Israel. He departs. But he sees death and the sting and the curse of death. And he says, but I'm going to come back in the midst of death. And I'm going to send one who can speak life. Jesus says, I am the life. He claims to be it. Then what does he do? He overcomes it through the incarnation. The incarnation happened on a Christmas day. That's it. That's why we celebrate this. The incarnation is the coming. While we were dead in our sins and our trespasses, God came to us. He came not as a, a king wanting to be served, but he came as a humble man saying that I came to seek and save which was lost. He came as a man who said, I didn't merely come to what? Be served, to serve, to give my life as a ransom. And you found him first and foremost, not in a palace, but in a manger in Bethlehem, wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. He came to save men from sin and death. He comes to Bethany where his beloved brother Lazarus is laying in a grave and he came for the purpose of displaying God's glory to bring life in the midst of what? 
death. Do you see this picture? It's a glorious picture of what Christmas is about, which is why we should start singing the first day in November about Christmas. Because you can never sing too much about what God has done through his son Jesus. Amen? So when Martha heard that he was coming, he goes to meet him. But Mary remains sitting in the house. She says, Lord, if you had been here, he would have been fine. Look at verse 22. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And then Jesus said, your brother's going to rise again. And then Mary said to him, I know that he's going to rise again on, in the resurrection on the last day. So she has this really sound theology. Like she knew the picture of resurrection comes from Job chapter 19. I mean, Job uh, in 19 just said, Though the worms destroy the body, yet in my flesh I will see God, whom I shall see for myself and not another. There was going to be a, even though your, your body wastes away and decays, there's a day in which it's going to be revived and you'll see God face to face. Job was assured of that. You, you see that Daniel in chapter 12, verse 2, he was assured of a, a resurrection. Jesus says it of himself that he is going to be the resurrection and the life. Like That's what he's doing. So she's assured of that. She knows that, but she's not expecting it to happen anytime soon. She's thinking, my brother Lazarus is gone. I'm so grateful that, that we knew Jesus. I'm so grateful that we know the Messiah and his truths because one day I'm going to get to see him again. Isn't that our thoughts and beliefs? Matter of fact, that's what Jesus is going to go on to say. Jesus says to her, verse 25, here it is, the I am, the fifth one. He goes, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet what? Shall he live? And everyone who lives and believes, what? Shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. More great theology, but she is not confident that her brother is going to be resurrected anytime soon. Do you see that? But I want you to see what happens. Verse 28. And when she said this, she went and she called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and he's calling for you. So meanwhile, Martha's ventured right outside of the city to see Jesus. She runs back and she gets Mary. And it's almost as she goes in and whispers in her ear, Mary, Jesus is here. He, he wants to talk to us. And she goes secretly. Why? Because you have a bunch of whalers there leading people in crying. And the reason that she goes in secret is hoping that maybe somehow they could go have a conversation with Jesus without every single person being involved. But unfortunately, when she hears that Jesus is here, what does she do? She gets up and she goes running. Meanwhile, as she runs out the screen door... Everybody goes, wow, I wonder what's happening. Matter of fact, you'll look in verse 29. When she heard it, she rose quickly, went to him. Now Jesus not yet come into the village, but he was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with him saw her in the house, consoling her, Jesus uh, saw Mary rise quickly, go out, and they what? They followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. 
Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, what did she do? She fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. She has a similar thing to her sister Martha. I want you to see the difference, though. Martha goes right to Jesus, scurrying about her to-do list. Mary goes, and what does she do? She falls at the feet of Jesus. Now, here's what's interesting. Anytime that you ever see this Mary in scriptures, you're going to see her at the feet of Jesus. She is the one who took the alabaster jar and anointed Jesus' head, wiped his feet with her hair. You, you heard that already. John mentioned that earlier. She is the one here in this case that goes and falls at the feet of Jesus. She is also the one who, when her sister Martha is scurrying around cooking dinner for Jesus, she is the one who implores her sister to come and sit and listen to Jesus' teaching. She is always at the feet of Jesus. And here's what I want you to say. Though she has a complaint, so to say, against Jesus, Jesus, if you had been here, Lazarus would not have died. There's no problem with you having a question or sometimes a complaint against who God is. The difference is, is where do you do it? Do you do it from your own bitter heart or do you do it humbly at the feet of Jesus? Because I believe wholeheartedly that Jesus says, come to me, you who are he- or what weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. In Hebrews 13, the same thing that Moses said to Joshua, God will never leave nor forsake you. He wants us to come to him in our hour of need. He wants to be our defender, our shield, our refuge. He longs to be that for us. Even in the midst of our suffering in which our are going to come, things that we are going to experience, he desires to be that for us. And so she falls at his feet. And then when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews had come with her also, now all the people were there, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And then Jesus begins to what? Weep. Now what's interesting is, is that John made sure to note that the idea of weep is different than the idea of wail. And so in the Jewish custom, they wailed and they mourned. But Jesus, in this case, wept. Like he sobbed and sobbed and sobbed and sobbed. He was deeply moved, deeply moved to the very core of his being. He was emotional. He was indignant, most likely somewhat angry. And you go, well, why? I mean, obviously his brother died, but he could have done something about it. No, listen to me. It goes far beyond that, even to you and me. Here's here's why God wept through his son, Jesus. This is why Jesus felt the emotion that you and I could never understand. It's because his friend Lazarus should have never died. Well, you go, well, he's the very one who could have prevented it. No, 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 I, I want you to go beyond that. He should have never died. In that moment, Jesus is taken back to the time of Adam, a time in which his creation was good and perfect, and there was no sin, and there was no evil. There was no need for solace or comfort in death, because there was no death. But when sin entered the world, death pervaded our lives. And that's why you and I, we now sit together in the church as the church, the body called out of darkness into life. That's why we encourage and edify and spur each other up towards love and good deeds. Why? Because we experienced death and hurt and pain. That's why we have shed many a tears 
That's why we have sobbed indignantly, sometimes even angrily, because we've lost our beloved. See, Jesus didn't just lose our beloved. He knew that this was never, ever the divine plan of God. Was it purposed? Yes, because he knew his creation would fall. But the very reason that Jesus even needed in this area is because of sin. And so can I under, can I just help you understand, like, the reason that you and I need to find solace is because of sinful men. The reason that you and I in this room, listen to me, question God's word and whether it's relative to our life is because of sinful men who have taken and corrupted it. The reason that you and I watch our TVs and disgust is because sinful men pull triggers. Sinful men blow up buildings. Sinful men take planes and crash them and devastate lives. It's not because God has stopped watching because he hasn't. He cares for you deeply and he already has the solution to man's greatest problem, our greatest fear, death and darkness. But we experience all the pain nonetheless because of that, what, sin. You see that? Every relationship that's ever been broken, every estranged son and daughter has come at the mercy of sin. And Jesus says, I'm the one who has the answer to it. And so he is weeping in anger, in frustration. He's greatly troubled. He asks where you've laid him. He goes there. And then the Jews said, see how he loved him? They see his mourning, his weeping. They see him sobbing. And they go, he loved him. Of course he does. He's concerned about them. But then some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man could have also kept this man from dying? Do you see the jab there? They go, wait, wait a second. Y'all say he's divine. He claims to be divine. If he's divine, you know, he just saved this man, this man that was born blind not too long ago. Well, why couldn't he have prevented this? And it's almost as if they knew that there was a concern from Jesus for men, but that he couldn't do anything about it. So they didn't question his love, they questioned his power. What, what I'm about to show you here are two things. Number one is that God personally loves you. Look, if you don't hear anything else I've said, in all of, all of our troubles, in all of our sin, in all the mistakes that we've ever made, God loves you and I personally. It's something the Grecians couldn't say, and it's something the Muslim could not say now. See, the Muslims and the Grecians, they believe that God is so high and so infinite that he would never, ever look upon us. He has he, he is a God far out there in the distance, and we can chant to him, and we can sing to him, but he wants nothing to do with us. Because we are, but yet, what, yet just peons, just people here, just little ants on a farm. And John says, no. God deeply cares for us. He deeply loves us, and he wants to do something about our problems. And so then Jesus comes, he deeply moved again, gets to the tomb after all the questioning. It was a cave, and a, a, there was a stone laid against it. And then verse 39, Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by that, this time there's going to be an odor, for he's been dead for four days. You better believe it. You better believe it. There is a strong stench, an odor that you will never forget strong. It pervades your nostrils. Even a shower can't clean you from it. 
your first thought is, I need to wash my hands. Clothing, spices, don't prevent it. And the reason why is because they did no embalming in the Jewish culture. It was merely wrap and spice and put in the tomb. And so by this day, rigor mortis had come and gone, and all it was was decay. Literally, to grab him would be flesh coming off. He was dead. Now, why is this such a miracle? It's because there's only one God who can take a dead man, dead in his sins, and bring him to life. There's only one God who can take a blind man and make him see. There's only one God who can take a lame and have him walk. There is only one God that can take a man that's dead physically and bring him back to life. And then Jesus says to her, did I not tell you that if you believed that you would see the glory of God? And so they took away the stone. Jesus lifted up his eyes to his father. And then look what he says. I love this. Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this on the account of the people standing around me, that they may believe that you sent me. See, Jesus has already said in John, I am the father of one. So Jesus knew that he was God. Jesus knew the solution to the problem four days earlier. Jesus knew the solution when he heard it. Jesus was not alarmed at Lazarus' death because he knew of his death before he ever got ill. So the question is not Jesus trying to somehow plead on behalf of the Father to do a divine healing. Jesus is the Father. They are, they are one and the same. He is merely the I am of the Father. Look at me as you see the Father. He is the visible image of the invisible God. Do you get the picture here? So the only reason he's praying is so that he can have a teachable moment for us nimrods that somehow need another sign, somehow need to be taught another prayer. He goes, God, I know what you're going to do. So thank you for answering in this way. I'm only doing it so all these people around here with their finite minds and their inability to see, that they would see the truth that I'm about to show them. And then he said these things and he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! A great commentator said, he didn't say, come out, because millions of people would have come out at one instant. So he made sure to say, Lazarus, come out, and he did. And the man who had died came out, his hands and his feet bound with linen strips, his face wrapped with linen cloth, and Jesus said, unbind him and let him go. The man was free from death and the sting thereof. It reminds us of 1 Corinthians 15, in which Paul says, if there is no resurrection in Christ and our faith is futile, us gathering here is in vain, we're never going to see loved ones again, so quit talking about it. The only reason that you and I here should grieve as if we have no hope, the only reason that we should not stand over a casket and wail and mourn 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 for hours is because of this. God has given us this great promise that we will see those loved ones again and we'll see him who is divine i was reading this week in first thessalonians and i came to chapter four and uh it was so great just because of the timing of which as i'm working through this message i get this scripture and it just reminds me of something i've read many times again but i think it brings encouragement to our hearts paul writes and he just says to the brothers in thessalonica who have a strong faith and have really, really uh, been imitators of the gospel. He says, I don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. And you see that language again, asleep. And the reason why is because for, for death as a Christian, it is merely asleep. It is merely one instant passing from this life to the next in which Paul said we depart from this, this body 
We're absent and now we're with the Lord. We're present with him. It's just this quick passing over. And he goes, you need to know that. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by the word of the Lord that we who were alive, who were left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from the heaven with a cry of command, the voice of the archangel, the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. He's just giving you the order. He goes, listen, I'm coming back for my people. I'm going to rapture them. But he goes, before I rapture those who are alive, I'm going to go get those who are no longer with us. And he goes, and I won't miss a single molecule. Oftentimes we ask questions. Well, what about the guy who, you know, was dumped in the sea? God, he created you out of the dust. He has no problem gathering you out of dust, okay? That's who we're talking about. For the Lord himself will descend from the heaven with a cry of command, the voice of the archangel, the sound of the trumpet, the dead in Christ will rise first. Then those who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, so we will be with the Lord always. So therefore, go encourage each other with these words. We should encourage each other again. Why? Because in the midst of suffering, in the midst of hurt, in the midst of pain, in the midst of darkness and sin and death, there is life. His name is Jesus. He's the resurrection and the life. If you come to me, though you die, you'll live. He is all we need. And so can I just say this last thing? Death is not the extinguishing of your light as a Christian. It is just merely a dimming of your lamp because the dawn has come. Do you understand? Blow out the lamp because the sun has come up in the morning. The spring has arrived. There is no more winter. We have hope. Darkness does not overshadow. The resurrection's come. And that's what we long for. Amen? Merry Christmas. And may God bring make comfort and solace to your heart because I know there are many people in this room who need that. I know it may be difficult to hear, read, and sometimes contemplate. I cannot think of a more affirming truth to know that God loves us than to know that he is preparing a place for us and for those that have gone before us. Amen? God, we pray that you would strengthen our hearts. I pray, Lord, that you would strengthen our backs and, and Lord, help us to stand firm, God. May we look to the hills. May we long to see the God who's lavished upon us great love through your Son. Father, you've overcome death and the sting thereof, Lord. You have swallowed it up through your victory. And God, I, I pray that though we face temptation of many times, though we oftentimes doubt and we mourn in ways that we oftentimes can't understand, I pray, Lord, that we would see the great love that you have for us, the care, the concern that you have, that we are not merely little ants and peons down below, but God, that you are concerned, that you want an intimate relationship with us. And so, the, Lord, the God of the universe is calling us to come. Lord, you clearly say the only way that happens is through the divine likeness of your son. And so, God, we thank you for Jesus. And, Lord, I pray that if there be one person here that doesn't know him, that, he, that they would find life, that they would be awoken from their slumber, that they would be called out of their own grave of sin. And, Lord, that they would know you and abide in you and be strengthened by you, be discipled by your people, that your spirit would captivate their hearts and their attention. 
So I pray, Lord, that our church, this body here at Stone Point, Lord, would do four things, God. I pray that we would know your word. I pray, God, that we would live in the power of your spirit. I pray, Lord, that we would encourage each other by your people and through prayer. So God, help us to do all of those things until the day of the dawn comes. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.